0: Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We are nearing the end. For those that have been with us for uh, most of Mark or all of Mark, you know that it's taken uh, quite some time for us to, to go through this gospel. Uh, but I pray that you have uh, enjoyed that, so just looking at the, the ministry of Christ from that personal perspective. I know a lot of times that pastors ask rhetorical questions. That is a question that uh, perhaps uh, you know the answer in your mind, but you don't really speak out loud. But this is not going to be a rhetorical question. You can actually respond to this one, okay? What is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the word extravagant? Extravagant, Somebody? Over the, top. Over the top. Yeah. Somebody else? Money. 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 That something could be extravagant, it's expensive. Yeah. Anybody else? Lavish. I like that. Richly appointed. Rich- richly appointed, yeah. Any others? Overabundant? Overabundant? Much. Yeah. Well, we're going to see that this morning because this morning I've titled this extravagant worship and it's been very convicting to me. But, uh, you know, that word extravagant, maybe we use that for a fancy party. Maybe we use that for a wedding. Uh, maybe even a, a vacation. So I mean, that was an extrav- extravagant vacation. And you see pictures and, you know, it's someplace in the tropics in this little hut over the ocean. You know, those really expensive places, you know, $5,000 a night that only in your dreams you will ever see that. Uh, and so it's one of those things, those are kind of the things that kind of do fit out this word extravagant. And uh, maybe we think of, I mean, this is, I can say we're a more matured crowd this morning uh, in age. <laughs> How many people remember Liberace? Okay. And I realize, I just distanced myself from from a lot of people that are younger, but Liberace was this piano player, uh, for those that didn't know. And he kind of said, you know, I, I don't know that he was the first to do so, but you're talking about uh, a precursor to Elton John, uh, Lady Gaga, and all these other ones with their extravagance as far as he would come out there and he did not have on a button-up shirt and some trousers or some pants. You know, he came out there and it was bigger than life. Extravagant. So that word can mean excess to the point of, that's kind of gaudy to a point of, wow, that was really done so well and over the top. And that can kind of mean, you know, two different things, extremely elegant or extremely wasteful. And the difference is often in the eyes of the beholder. For example, weddings. We told both of our girls that uh, that we, you know, plan to you know, pay for their weddings, uh, but we did give them a budget. And we said, you can spend this money however you want. And if you want an extravagant dress, then we're probably going to be eating crackers at the wedding, okay? But if you want to do it this way, and so it was totally their choice of how to do that, but they kind of had a budget that they had to work with then. Well, some people don't seem like they have a budget to work in. Such was the case of uh, back in 2005, one of the um, richest people in the world, he's an oil tycoon from India, and uh, he truly gave his daughter an extravagant wedding. And you decide if it, that was kind of over the top and gaudy, or if it was just extremely elegant. Uh, it began with a twenty-page invitation in silver boxes. So, if you were one of the a thousand guests that were invited, you received this twenty-page invitations, silver, um, you know, uh, box that it came in. Uh, you were invited to stay five days. Uh, in Paris at a five-star hotel, all expenses paid, all expenses paid. The reception was held at the Palace of Versailles, if you've ever been to Versailles. It's quite a nice place. Carly and I have had the advantage to go there and tour the, that castle, and it's pretty over the top, it's pretty overwhelming. And they had fireworks at the Eiffel Tower, and a total cost, $60 million. $60 million. Extravagant? Wasteful? Which one would you go? You know, it, it, Eye of the beholder. Extravagant? Well, he's a billionaire. You know, 60 million to him is probably about the budget that I gave to my daughter, In maybe in comparison. Or would you say, no, there's no reason ever to spend 60 million dollars on a wedding. I would probably, instead of saying extravagant in the sense of over-the-top, nice, elegant, I would probably say wasteful. Well, as we get into the Word this morning, we're going to come upon what we call a Markin sandwich. We've seen this four times before. Mark has a writing style where he will take what we normally would say, here's one event, two events, three events, and he makes a sandwich out of it. Can you remember, if you've been here throughout our study, that there's been several times that Mark would do this? And I would say today I'm going to preach a longer text because I want us to see it as Mark wrote it. And easily we could have preached each one of those events in a singular fashion and it would be appropriate. And yet Mark wrote with a style that is a little bit distinct from John and Matthew and Mark, I mean, and Luke. And we see this and, and I just think that's the wonderment of God. You know, where he gave us four gospels telling the same story and yet each one has a personality. And Mark wrote with this. He usually opens up with a story or a comment, and then he has a focus story, and then he has a final story or comment at the end. A Markin sandwich. And when you have a sandwich like that, you usually have a slice of bread, the meat or whatever you have for the sandwich that makes the distinction of what kind of sandwich it is, and another piece of bread. So let's look at this passage this morning, these verses, 1 through 11, in that style. You're going to find an opening piece of bread, you're going to see a closing piece of bread. And the main story that's really to give an illumination, as Mark intended it, is in the middle. And he uses these other two pieces of bread, per se, to, to kind of give that that contrast and that focus. So the first slice of bread we see in verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover, in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. I could preach endlessly on that. I mean, there is so much just in those two verses of the contra. I mean, of how we just try to manipulate the situation for our own good. And that's part of Mark's purpose there. They have a purpose. They want to get rid of Jesus. They have This is undeniable. They have been leading up to this point. But even in their own minds, they're going, there's a proper way to do this. And one thing that we do not want is a revolt from the people. It probably wouldn't be good to do it right during the Passover, or the immediacy of that. Now, why do they say that? Because the Passover and this time uh, is kind of a strange thing to us. What if we took the 4th of July, a national holiday that has some naturalistic kind of mindset or Independence Day, and we took Easter, a spiritual holiday, and we put them both together? That's what Passover was for the Jewish people. It had a national kind of flair to it because it was their identity as a nation, but it was very spiritual. So if you took two events like the 4th of July and you took Easter and you combine those together, would that be a pretty big deal in America? Yeah. And that's why they said, it's probably not good to do this right at this moment, even though they would wait just a day later. And so that's part of this first thing. Now move down to verses 10 and 11. Let's see the other piece of bread before we get to the middle. Mark 14, 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. We're pretty familiar with this story, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, he's gone down in history known as. I mean, when you talk about somebody who's a traitor, a betrayer, what's the mind that even somebody who's not biblically minded kind of comes up with? Oh, you're a Judas, and so forever he's kind of known for this betrayal. Well, Mark uses this this intention for the religious leaders to kill Jesus, but just, you know, at a convenient time where it doesn't stir too much the waters. And then the betrayal of Judas, he uses those to tell us a story that comes in the middle, and that's what he's really trying to illustrate. Now, the middle of a sandwich is really what gives us its personality. Wouldn't you say that the middle of the sandwich is the difference between a, a, a PBJ and a BLT? You know? The difference between a Reuben and a Cuban sandwich? It's, it's what's in the middle. And that's what Mark does here. So what is this story that's in the middle? He introduces a lady that he never gives by name, but John does. And we really do believe that it's the same story, even though there's a couple differences between the two. I think we can reason out those when we look at the perspective of who the Gospels were written to and what each writer was trying to accomplish. Um, But I'm very confident in my own understanding that this lady who comes and breaks this perfume and anoints Christ is no other than Mary. Now again, Mary is a very familiar name. So which Mary? I believe that this is Mary, as in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. One of those intimate friendships that Jesus had that we saw just a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the sorrow and how Jesus wept when he saw Mary and Martha and others that were weeping over the death of Lazarus. And so, she comes in and she comes to this place to anoint Jesus and uh, very expensive uh, anointment. Uh, ointment. Um, most say that it would probably be worth somewhere of forty to thirty, uh, $30 to forty thousand dollars in today' dollars. So it's not just you know a, a twenty dollar bottle of perfume. It's not just a hundred dollars. It's not a couple thousand dollars, but it's thirty to forty thousand dollars worth and uh, expensive, definitely. Is this a loving act? Without doubt. Let's come down to the, the last question. Wasteful. No. I would say no, and as we read this, no. And yet, did everybody in that setting see it in the same light? No, what we begin to see is that people saw it in different lights. And even the disciples begin to say, this is wasteful. And they even spiritualize in a way with what we could say is a very practical thing. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Okay, Now understand this, guys. This alabaster flask is very expensive in its own right. It's holding something of real expense, but even the alabaster flask, was not your normal everyday ditch. It wasn't just you go out in the garage and you get something and you put the nard in it. This was very, very expensive. It says that a pure nard, very costly. And what does she do with this flask? She breaks the flask. Okay, so it's not only that she comes in with this expensive, but notice that she breaks it and it's pretty much unusable afterwards. In other words, she expends the life of this alabaster flask she doesn 't pour out the ointment that would have been enough to do thirty forty thousand dollars worth of a perfume to anoint Christ. that would have been extravagant enough. but even the flask that 's very expensive, she breaks it and she pours this uh, uh, to anoint him on his head and it basically because he 's in a reclining position, which would have been the Middle Eastern uh, kind of way, eating if they were eating at this table they 'd be sitting on the floor and they 'd be reclining. And she she pours it over his head, but eventually anoints his whole body down to his feet. Pretty amazing thing. But here's our sandwich. Religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus. Judas Iscariot, he's about to betray Jesus. And right in the middle is this woman anointing Christ, I believe Mary, that it's anointing Christ with 30000 40000 maybe $50,000 worth of expensive and rare perfume. Why would Mark do this? Why would Mark write it in such a style that he wants us to see? What does he want us to see here? Well, let's go back to verse 3. And while he's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at the table, a woman came in with the alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Nard was very, very expensive, came from the mountains of India. Uh, It would have been unusual for some person to possess this unless you you were royalty. Uh, Some scholars believe that perhaps this was an inheritance that Mary had. Uh, Again, don't have to agree with it, but think about women in that society. Their identity was through their husband or through their son. They didn't really have an identity and they really didn't have an ability to live apart from that if they were at odds with a husband or with a son. Their, their viability was that. And so this uh, this really is makes sense to me that if this was part of her inheritance, this is kind of her safety net. This is something that, okay... Even if everything goes wrong, I can go sell this, and I can probably fend for myself for the rest of my life. Can you see that as a possibility? And I'm not saying that because the Word of God doesn't tell us that, that we have to kind of draw maybe some assumptions there, but I think that that could fit. And so would it make sense if that is something that your safety net, this is kind of your worldly belongings, that maybe you would come up and that you would just use a little dab of the nard? Because that's usually what people did. Number one, they didn't have a whole alabaster flask full of it. They didn't have this much content. And if they did have some, they used it very sparingly on very, very special occasions. And yet she comes and there's no restraint. To the point where look how people respond that are there in presence. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves, what? What word is used to describe that? indignantly. (laughs) They didn't see this, Oh, look, you know, what a commitment, what a faithfulness. No, they take offense. If you're indignant, are you agreeable to what is happening before you? No, you're standing against that mind, body, and soul. You're indignant. You're not just, ah. I would have probably made another choice. No, you're taking position. You're giving judgment. And that's what they do here there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment, the ointment, wasted like that? Look what word they use, wasted. Why was the ointment wasted? Indignant, wasted. Can you begin to see that there were not all those that really responded favorably to what Mary did? And as much as you and I would look back and say, man, what an act of, Worship! What an act of sacrifice. What reckless abandon. Not everybody at that table saw it the same way. In fact, the other time that this word indignant is used in the Bible, it's always good to do word studies and you can say, okay, how else was this used to kind of get the full expression? Remember when James and John were arguing with the other disciples about who was going to be sitting at the right and left-hand side of Christ? And it said that the other disciples were indignant even though they were feeling the same way (laughs) and they were wondering if they were going to be up there at the left and the right so they have this kind of repulsive response well that's the word that's used here the people sit around this table instead of seeing it as an act of worship as an act of, of of ultimate you know supreme giving yourself away in sacrifice they are repulsed by it in fact, the Greek word, this is kind of funny, Greek words have great depth, much more than our English words. And the root of this Greek word is a horse's snort. Okay? So and I don't know that they snorted at the table, but that's what the word is. That that's how they responded with a horse's snort kind of attitude toward what Mary did. And the general response to Mary's action is not one of praise, it's one of ridicule. Now if you look back at the next very, if you look at the very next verse, you see that it gets even more intense. Look at verse five. They actually give a reason and then they actually have a a, a reaction toward toward her. They said, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They're indignant to the point of a horse's snort. And now they scold her. Notice their reasonings. Now, let's be real real honest here, okay, in our own evaluation. If we were sitting at this table, would there have been a part of us that almost like that wedding, saying, really, Versailles? You have to have the reception at Versailles? Oh, you have to have fireworks over the Eiffel Tower? You know, couldn't you have had just some sparklers? That's what we had at our wedding, you know? Couldn't you have just done that and then given the rest to the poor? Is that a legitimate kind of mindset when we see extravagance? Yeah. I think that many of us, especially if you're very pragmatic and practical people, you're going, you know, if, Liberace, if you would have just sold one of those outfits, you know, you could have fed a city, you know. And in our mind, we kind of want to make sense of what somebody else is doing. And so we're thinking, okay, man, give, give Jesus, he's, he's worth a couple drops here. But, you know, Give Jesus a hundred dollars worth and then give the rest to ministry. And that may even make sense. Please hear me on this. That may even make sense in normal times. Is this a normal time? No. Days before Christ goes to the cross. Is buried. Do they really understand that? Thing? I... Th- He's done everything that he can to help them understand that. And yet, the scripture says they did not understand. When do they begin to understand? After the coming of the Holy Spirit. So even the scripture tells us of this strain that happens there. So we don't even have to guess at that because the word of God tells us they did not understand. So they're reacting in a way. Oh, I guess what I'm doing is, guys, if we're sitting at the table, there's a part of Bobby Lincoln that says, okay, man, a couple of drops, come on. The whole thing, break the flash, that flash could have been used for ministry. Truth be told, giving it to the poor really wasn't the idea, I believe, of why they scolded her. In fact, John, in his gospel, telling the same story, tells us the real motives. John 12, 4-6. This is where the parallel of the Gospels, reading all the Gospels in parallel, really helps us. Because each one gave us a different perspective. Uh, Just as if four of us saw an accident, but one was on this side of the street, one was on this side of the street, one was on that side of the street, and one was on this side of the street, would we have seen different things, perhaps? Yes. And so the four Gospels give us a clarity of all the events. Almost a 360 view of what's happening here. And so listen to how John describes... What is happening at this table? John 12, 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Didn't we just see that in Mark's gospel? But now look what John adds. (laughs) He names names. (laughs) He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself with what he put, what was put into it. There's one thing: say, okay, use it for the poor. But John goes on and he goes, "Let me tell you the real story of what was happening." Isn't it amazing that uh, we can make our motives? Have you ever taken a motive that you had that wasn't spiritual and you tried to make it spiritual? I think every husband has done that at least once. I'm not saying the wives haven't done that, but I think every husband has done that. You know, um, uh, we really do not need to get a new kitchen. You know, what, what we have is sufficient. It's good, and you know, why spend twenty thousand dollars on a new kitchen? We could give that to the poor. Now, here's the question. Here's the fault of that reasoning. Do we then write the check for twenty thousand dollars? <laughs> And give it to the poor? <laughs> no, we just kind of use that as a spiritual excuse, maybe. It's one of those things that that we have this ability to sometimes, in our reasoning, maybe use a, a, a conviction that's not really ours. It's not the root of the matter, but it makes it sound a little bit better. And I think that's what happened here, by evidence of what John writes. I don't think that they're going, hey, let's actually go sell this, get this money and go give it to the poor. Mark 14, 6 and 7. Jesus sees right through all the smoke in the mirrors. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. How many of you long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? Won't won't that be an amazing thing? wouldn't you long for Christ himself to look at you and say, you've done a beautiful thing for me? Is that not, let's let's not hurry through verse 6. She has done a beautiful thing to me. All that we would long to hear that, all that we would have a heart that, that desires that, all that we would have a heart that would respond to that. Look what he says in verse 7. If you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. I mean, taken out of context, verse 7 doesn't sound very Christ-like. Give to the poor, serve the poor, go help the needy. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, okay? And yet, what, what is it that he's trying to tell us? Is he saying that the poor is not important and serving the poor is not important? No, you cannot make that from that statement. What is he saying? Hey, you're living a special day. You have this opportunity. Mary understands, maybe not the fullness of this, to go back, do they have complete understanding? But she understands the sensitivity of the day and she responds in her love for Christ, her devotion for Christ, and she does something extravagant. She does something that is sensical, or that is, you know, it just doesn't make sense at all. Folks, people do not mind moderate Christianity. Do not mind it at all. Dollar worth of Jesus, nobody is offended by that. Little dab, Jesus just simply one of the ways to God. The world is one thousand percent accepting of that. if you just line Jesus up with the other gods, the other thoughts, the other ways of, of living. It's when you begin to get into the central focus of what Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Until you begin this, and you begin to see that Christ alone is the one that gives us worth and this ability to be in relationship with the Holy God, that's when it really gets offensive. But as long as we're kind of moderate about it, we're just kind of a little dab, people are not going to snort at you. But you start saying that Christ is the only way, well, what arrogance that out of the whole world, you would say in all the different religions that you would say that Christ is the only way. That's when people begin to snort. That's when they say that's too radical. That's too extreme. And to live in response to that certainly is too extreme, to sell out the entirety of your life in devotion to this one who you call your savior. But isn't that the call that Christ has called us to? Not, not just invited us to, but actually called us to. Romans 12.1, which precedes our verse for Romans 12.2, our verse for 20.21. Uh, Romans 12.1, 2, 20, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus' call is one of extravagant and extreme devotion. He had no problem calling for commitment that would even lead to the point of death. Never you see that Christ somehow goes, Oh, don't get so radical that it would cost you this much. Play it safe. That will be enough for me. You won't find that anywhere in the gospel, and you won't find that anywhere in the words of Christ. What we see is this radical difference. Carry your cross daily, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Take up your cross daily, die to yourself daily. This is the call of Christ. It's radical. It is over the top. In fact, do you find it interesting that Jesus has no problem of telling that the poor will always be with them? Is he kind of dissing the poor at that point? Uh, poor, they'll be here tomorrow. Is that the attitude? No. He knows what's going to happen in the coming days. He knows the, the radical nature of all of that, that all of history is going to be kind of centralized, focused on three days. If you're a believer in the Word of God, if you're a believer in the gospel of Christ, Really, all of history really does kind of come down in this funnel effect to three days. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. The New Testament writer said we have nothing to preach, we have nothing to really focus on, nothing to, to give as exhortations if we do not have these two things, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. All of human history, down to those three days. Here's the challenge. Do our lives go down to those three days? I told you this morning, I was kind of discouraged. The the word kind of discouraged me. Because I've, I've kind of broadened out past those three days. And I'm humbled by this text. Look at the response that Christ gives. Mark 14, 8 and 9. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wow. Could we say the same thing of what Judas did? I see some yeses in those. I would probably say yes. I mean, does the story does the story of Judas kind of not not in the same light? But do we know Judas today, even if you're not a churchgoer, as the ultimate betrayal? If somebody in your company betrays you so they can get that position that you wanted, you were more qualified, but somehow they spread some garbage and they get that position and you don't. Man, they're such a Judas. (laughs) He's known today. She's known today. She's known in light of the gospel. He's kind of known as the exact opposite. Judas knew the cost of everything and he knew the value of nothing. Mary seems to know the cost of everything, but she seems to know the value of everything. And ultimately, guys, isn't that going to be the description of, of, of our life? Somewhere on that tangent of, of maybe the knowing the cost of everything, but the value of nothing. Or over here, that we know the value of something, or, or the cost of something, but we know the value of something. And, and don't we live kind of in a tangent of that, kind of in between there? Imagine that there's days that our little meter is kind of going over here. You don't need that new kitchen. <laughs> Folks, we live in a special time. I, I can't say that, that Mary knows besides the, the inspiration of the Spirit of God upon her that she's anointed. But what did Jesus say? Hey, she anointed my body before my burial. Before I'm dead, before I'm buried in a grave. Before this happens, she's anointed my body. She may not have known all the details of what was about to transpire, but she... Had I believe by Holy Spirit, kind of instruction. Man, you're living in sensitive days. Here's my question, guys. Here's here, here's my here's my application this morning. Do we realize that we're living in special days? Do you agree that we live in special days? Days that call for us to live in a conservative, self-protection kind of. Don't be too radical kind of mode because you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know what the government's going to do about all these religious rules or this, that, and the other. Or do you think that we live in a day that truly we could say, not knowing the future events, that God has called us to radical living? Oh, for me to know the cost of everything, the value of nothing. I don't say that to cause guilt. I don't think guilt's a good motivator. Guilt's a good motivator of Satan because he can kind of you know, discourage you and make you run from the throne of God. This text doesn't make me run from the throne of God because, oh my goodness, look at the self-protection. Look at my pride. Look at all these things. All of those are true. It makes me run to the cross. makes me God, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Because I'm probably not Mary in this story. I'm probably Judas. And I want to be Mary. I truly want to live my life with reckless abandon for the cause of the gospel. I truly do desire that. I just have so much pride and so much caution and so much reserve and so much, and I can make sense. Well, you know, let's not do that because, you know, know, I'm the leader of the family. I'm the provider. Let's do this. This is a wiser choice. All for us to know the cost of everything but the value of nothing. All that we might be people that know the cost of things but that we know the real value of things so that we can live our lives in reckless Abandon. Bobby, is is that really what this story... Let's paint it by the three days of history that I think are the most clear insight to all of humanity. From the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. Mary, a week later, do you think, oh man, I should... She's saying to herself, I should not have done this. Or do you think after the death, burial, and then resurrection of Christ, she goes, Oh, what a what an investment. What a what a wonderful thing that I was able to do something beautiful for my Christ. Fast forward to Judas. He receives the thirty pieces of silver. And not in repentance, but the Bible says in regret. He goes and he tries to throw that back. They did say, No, that's yours. <laughs> that's on your hands. And he goes and he takes his own life. When we use those three days as a perspective of what is important, what is valuable, what is really meaningful in life, then we see these two stories and we see radical differences, guys. May we look at those three days and that would be the perspective of our lives. Oh, I desire that. I believe that you desire that. But now, God, give us the ability to do that. Let us know the cost of things. but Father, let us know the true value. By light of those three days, of history. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, the, what a humbling text this has been for me this morning, Father. Father, I, I don't know that I could use the word extravagant. To describe, Father, the, the, the way that I, Father, I just worship you in the way that I've committed myself to you, Father. I love you. Father, I desire to follow you. And Father, I I desire to do beautiful things for you. Not to get earthly acclaim, but because you're deserving of beautiful things. And so, Father, as we sing this last song, this reflection song, this time where we take the text that has been preached and we begin to reflect upon it and what it means as we would go from these doors and go out, Father, would would you help us with this this morning? For, Father, we do desire this. I, I believe many desire this. Will you help us to live it out? to know the cost of things, but Father, to know the true value of things and not to lose that sense of value because we're so looking at the cost. With reckless abandon, Father, call us to be a people that truly know the time that they're living in and that, Father, that we do beautiful things for the gospel, beautiful things, Father, live in response to the beauty of the gospel by just loving you and loving you well. Father, lead us as we sing this song, Father, that we would really uh, be impacted in our hearts and our minds as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online